last week, you may remember, uh, I started with a pretty heavy question. It's the question, what if today was your last, your last day on earth? What if you knew you only had 24 hours to live? And then we talked a little bit about what would you do? And some people, maybe you'd knock some things off your bucket list, you know, things that you wish you'd done. And if you knew it was your last day, you'd do it for sure. And some people, maybe you'd reconcile a relationship or two, make a phone call. For some people, maybe you'd take a step of faith that you've been hesitant to take but if you knew it was your last day, then you'd take that step of faith. And the reason why we were even talking about that, whether it was your last day on earth or not, is because the guy we were looking at, Stephen, it was his last 24 hours on earth. And we're looking at the same situation again this week. It's Stephen. It's his last day still. And what happened was that Stephen was a guy who lived by faith every day. And because he lived by faith, he faced opposition. And what happens in that last day in his life is he gets put in a situation none of us would want to be in. He's on trial. In fact, on trial before the Supreme Court of their day, and he's accused of a crime, the worst crime that you could possibly be accused of in that time. And what ends up happening is it's not Stephen so much that's on trial, it's his faith that's on trial. And that's what we're going to talk about today, faith on trial. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Acts chapter 7. I'm going to start reading in verse 1, and we're going to go all the way through verse 53, Lord willing, today. So Acts chapter 7, starting in verse 1, and what's happening there, we talked about, remember last week, how important faith is. We saw in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, without faith it is impossible to please God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And we saw also that you begin a relationship by faith. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, for we are saved by grace. That means you're given something you don't deserve. You don't come into a relationship with Christ because you, you cleaned up your act. You know, you stopped going to R-rated movies and, and stopped drinking and stopped smoking and started going to church, even if it's still where they play R-rated movies. You, you start going to church. That's not why you're saved though, is it? It's by grace through faith that you're saved. None of your works or else you'd be able to be proud of what you've done in cleaning up your act. You deserve something. It's by grace. You don't deserve anything through faith. It's your trust in God. And we saw last week that Stephen was a man who was full of faith. Acts chapter 6 verse 5. And he was living by faith. And when you live by faith, those who don't live by faith will eventually oppose you because you represent God to them. And that's what happened in Stephen's life. And they couldn't oppose him and, and defeat him in just a, a straight-up argument. And so what happens is they bring up some false accusations against him. They say that he, he's blasphemed the, the temple, God, Moses. He's guilty of blasphemy, they're saying. And, and to us, you kind of hear, whoa, that's, that sounds bad. Oh, it's really bad. People would be so upset about this. It would be the equivalent of what happened last week uh, with the guy in Cleveland. People want to kill that guy. People wanted to kill Stephen. The crowd was all riled up. They're ready to kill him at that moment. But then the leaders... It's called the Sanhedrin, which would be the Jewish uh, Supreme Court. There's 71 men. They call a formal trial together. And look at what the high priest says, the leader of the Sanhedrin, in verse 1. Then the high priest, which would either be Annas or Caiaphas, uh, guys that we saw when Jesus was on trial with false charges. The apostles came before these men. He speaks to him and he says, and the high priest asked him, are these charges true? In our vernacular, you might say, how do you plead? Guilty or not guilty? Let's try and imagine. We're in a formal trial here. There's 71 men. They're in semicircles. Stephen stands before them. He's got the worst charges you can imagine brought before him. And they say to him, how do you plead? And I don't know if you've ever been on trial before for anything. I don't know if you've ever been on trial at all. Maybe a traffic ticket. And, and what's the goal? Your goal is you want them to hear your side of the story, right? Like you want to plead your case. Even if, it, you know, even if you were guilty, you still go, right? And still, like, maybe the police officer won't show up. Isn't that your hope? Or am I alone? <laughs> and what, or, or, or maybe you go in and you're like, listen, if you're a police officer, let me just get something real clear, okay? It's, not, it's against the rules for you to drive cars that don't have lights on the top. How are we supposed to spot you ahead of time? Isn't that how this game works? Sorry, confession's good for my soul. 
And so even if you go to for the judge and you say, he was driving a Camaro. Like, that doesn't count, you know? He's suburban, whatever it was. You want to plead your case. You want the judge to hear your case. But when you're just watching a trial in the simplest form, what's the point of the trial? You want the truth to come out. You, you want to know what, what was the truth here. And think about it, we live in this media age where we get to see all these high-profile cases, and you can even look back in history, and they'll, talk, they'll do documentaries and different things on high-profile cases. And, and what do you want to know? You want to know what was the truth? And so whether it's like Watergate from back in history or whether it's Benghazi right now, or, or whether it's you know, white-collar crime like Enron or, or Bernie Madoff, or whether it's like, you know, cold blood, it's like a murder that took place, you know, Casey Anthony or Scott Peterson. Uh, perhaps if you think about all the, the high-profile cases, the one that sticks out in my mind, probably publicized the most, was the O.J. Simpson trial. Not the one he's on now, before O.J. Simpson trial. You remember that? For those of you who are around and can remember that, just when I say the O.J. Simpson trial, some of you picture a white Ford Bronco driving down the expressway in California. And maybe you remember some of the things from the trial. I remember like, this attorney comes out and tries to put a glove on his hand. He holds his hand all wide. See, it doesn't fit. <laughs> and then they said this statement, right? If the glove doesn't fit, you must have... That's right, so you know. And everybody probably has an opinion about whether he murdered his wife or didn't murder his wife or ex-wife there. But what's the goal? Is you want to you know the truth that happens there. So let me ask you this question. What if you were on trial today? What if it was your faith that was on trial, though? Could you be found guilty of living a life by faith? And imagine they went through all the evidence. And there was a judge or a jury that, that would convict you of being guilty of faith or not. Imagine they went through everything, how you spend your time, and they evaluate how you spend your time. Would they have to come to the conclusion this person trusts Christ? They went through all your financial records, your checkbook, how you spend your money, your giving, all the different stuff, and they evaluate, does this person trust God with their finances? And they had a video camera in your house, and a video camera at your work, and they saw how you act with your family, and they saw how you act with your coworkers, and they see how you live your life. Could you be convicted of living a life by faith. If there was a judge and it was impossible to please him, apart from living a life of faith, would you be convicted of living a life of faith? Here, Stephen's on trial, but what's interesting is we're going to read through these verses. He doesn't say, well, they said this and this is what I actually said and here's the evidence. Instead, what he does is he preaches a sermon to them. It's essentially an Old Testament survey. And what he shows them is four phases of faith and we're going to look at those four different phases of faith. And as we look at them, I want us to ask ourselves the question, am I guilty of this one? Is this true about my faith? The first phase of faith that he shows us is the call to faith. That's our first phase of faith, the call to faith. And so they ask him this question in verse 1, how do you plead? Guilty or not guilty? Are the charges true? And he doesn't say an answer at that point. Instead, he starts to tell them about the very beginning of faith. For that nation, the father of their nation, the father of their faith. His name is Abraham. Look at him in verse 2. To this he replied, brothers and fathers. So he's kind. They're my brothers. We're Jews. He's a Greek. They're probably Hebrew, Hebraic Jews. Brothers and fathers. He's respectful to the elders. He says, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. <laughs> they didn't know yet. Verse 4, so he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living, the land he showed him. 
And he gave him no inheritance here, not even a foot of ground, but God promised him, so he didn't have anything, but he had a promise, but God promised him that he and his descendants after him will possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. So I'm going to bless the land through your descendants, I'm going to bless the whole world through your children, but he's childless. Just try to imagine being Abraham in this situation. He's 75 years old at this point. He lives in the land of the Chaldeans. It's a godless land. They're known for worshiping the moon god. They're a bunch of idol worshipers. God speaks to him. There's no scriptures at this point. God somehow speaks into his life, and here's his command. Go to the land I will show you. And the scriptures don't show us the full dialogue. Wait, what happened at that moment? Abraham say, well, am I going to like it there? <laughs> What's it going to be like in the land you will show me someday? Will it snow there? Will, it, will we be close to the beach? I'd like to be two hours from the beach and two hours from the mountains, and if it does snow, I'd like everything to shut down. Is that cool? Like, how does this conversation go? He doesn't know. And isn't that the essence of faith? He knows what he's supposed to do. Go. He doesn't know the outcome. Now it's not blind faith. He has a promise, and I will bless you. But isn't that the struggle with faith, is that we know promises, we know commands, we don't know outcomes. Isn't the outcome we struggle with? Think about how many commands that we know that we struggle to obey, and we struggle to obey because we don't know if we trust God. Because of the outcome. Be holy as I am holy. That's all over the scriptures, right? We know what that means, in essence. Stop sinning. But we don't know the outcome. God, will I still have any fun? Like, that's why we struggle. It's not because it's not clear the command. It's that we struggle with the outcome. How about this one? Forgive as you've been forgiven. And I don't know what you're like, but I, I love being forgiven. Forgiving is a little bit more difficult. Because what about the outcome? What if they just think they can get away with it? But trust me with the outcome. I've given you the command. Or what about this? Uh, it's more blessed to give than to receive. We know that we're commanded, we can argue about tithing and all that kind of stuff, but we know we're commanded to give. But isn't the real question not whether we're supposed to give, but will I have enough for me? It's the outcome we struggle with. It's not the commands. And here's Abraham in the situation. Go and trust me with the outcome. And what's the promise? He's given this promise. The promise is, and I'll bless the world through your descendants. I'm trying to think about this from Abraham's perspective. He's 75 years old. His wife's 65 years old. Her name is Sarah. They haven't had children. They've struggled with infertility their whole lives. I know some of you have struggled with infertility. Um, this is the number of people that we have here. The stats will tell us that there's several people. Some of you haven't. Can you, can you imagine that, Ben? Some of you, you cannot grasp, and I'm not saying I do either, but you cannot grasp the desire some women have to bear children. They feel that's their calling. You talk about faith, the calling of faith. They feel like that's their calling. I remember one time getting a glimpse of this. Uh, there was a woman I heard sharing her story. And she was talking about her and her husband's struggle with infertility. And she said, and, and we got pregnant. And I was thinking, oh, the story you know, ends with her happy that they ended up having a baby. And then she talked about it, and then we had a miscarriage. And then she started to cry, just like tears type crying. And so I'm, I'm intrigued. I'm like, I'm gri gripped into this. And she says, and soon after that, we got pregnant again. And I thought, oh, that's very you know, gracious of the Lord that quickly afterwards they get pregnant. So then we had our second miscarriage. And she started to really cry, like not just tears coming down, like really crying. And then when she started talking about the third miscarriage, she was weeping. And I remember at that point I started to see the passion and longing and desire this woman had to have children. And I started to feel with her. She ended up having 12 miscarriages. Twelve. I don't know if Abraham and Sarah ever had any miscarriages. I don't know. It just doesn't say. But I know they wanted children, and I know they couldn't have them. 
And so then to be given a promise when you have no children and you're 75 years old, I'm going to bless the world through your child. Is that like a cruel joke? <laughs> Abraham's not an idiot. He can look in the mirror and see. He's old. She's old. It's not happening. So why did he go? And what had to be the compelling thing for Abraham is he looked at his resources, he looked at his abilities, he looked at himself and saw hopelessness. And then he looked to an omnipotent God. And that God could, because God is able, God is powerful, God could fulfill his promises and he believed it and he trusted it, so he answered the call. And the question we all have to ask ourselves is, do we have a call? And usually when we talk about whether we have a call or not, most of us are talking about, where should I live? Where should I go to college? What major should I have? Who should I marry? Should we do the, you know, this business thing, that business thing, this relationship, that relationship, real specific stuff? And let me just say this. Before we can ever talk about the specific things in the call of God, we've got to first deal with the general stuff because the general call always comes before the specifics. The general call of God always comes before the specifics. You look at an Abraham situation, go to a land. Before he's ever told, once he has that son, oh, by the way, I want you to take that son on this day up to this place and offer him as a sacrifice. It gets real specific. He gets the general call. Peter, in his life, before he has to decide, am I going to minister to the Jews or the Greeks? It's drop your nets, come follow me, I'll make you a fisher of men. We'll get specific later. Will you come follow me now? Come, go, those type of general calls. And so we all have a general call. Let me tell you what it is. Come and die. Jesus says it like this. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Then he said to them, all, general, if anyone, seems like that's being emphasized here, says to all, if anyone, not just the 12, not just the people of that time, everyone throughout all of history, if anyone would come after me, follow me, live by faith, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. That's the call. That's the general call, and it's a call to come and die. To take up your cross is a death sentence. It means die to your desires, die to your dreams, die to all the things about your life, die to your sin, die to who you were, die to all of that, because your life is now about me. Follow me, Jesus Christ. It's a call to come and die. It's a call of surrender. And if you've walked by faith for any amount of time, you've probably experienced this multiple times in your journey. If you haven't trusted Christ as your Savior, that's the call of faith to you. It's the first step. He begins at the beginning with Abraham. It's the general call. I think about it in my own life when I've experienced this. I was sharing with a friend, a new friend this week, just how I had come to the place where I trusted Christ as my Savior. So a guy sat down, he shared the gospel with me. I was 18 years old, punk senior in high school, uh, just interested in partying, real self-centered, all that stuff. And uh, he sits down and he shares with me and I can never please God with my life. And I'm like, why is this guy telling me this stuff? Like, it's kind of depressing information. And he tells me, no matter how good you try to be, the best you can do will never please God. It never outweighs your sin. And so I, I was thinking, that this is kind of, kind of bad news. He tells me about Jesus dying for the sins of the world. Jackpot! Like, we're all good, right? Like, where do I sign the insurance forms here? You know, this is great stuff. And then he says, but what has to happen is you have to surrender your life to Christ. Surrender? I'm not into Surrender? You're talking about surrender. That means you have to submit to Jesus. He becomes Lord. He's in control. You're not in control anymore. I don't want to do that. Until I came to the place where I realized I was hopeless without Christ. I surrendered my life to Christ. A couple years later, I was at a missions conference. There was a couple thousand 
uh, college students, and there's this missionary speaking. The theme for the week was anything, anytime, anywhere. So you do anything God wants you to do, anytime God wants you to do it, and go anywhere he wants you to go. And you kind of see where the week was headed, right? Like, have you ever been to one of these Christian things before? And in the last day, he's going to give an invitation. He's going to ask you, you won't do anything, anytime, anywhere. And the last night came, we're at this missions conference, sitting in the pews, we're singing this song. He starts challenging everybody. Are you willing to do anything God wants you to do, anytime he wants you to do it, and go anywhere he wants you to go? And he had these little cards up on the stage. He said, you come up here, and all the card says on it, anything, anytime, anywhere, put your name on it, let God fill in the details. If you're willing to do that, come forward. People start coming forward. All my friends are going up there. Well, one, one of my best friends standing next to the speaker. My girlfriend, my, now my wife, Shanna, she leaves. She goes up there. I'm standing there in the pews, and it's like I got cement in my shoes. I, I can't move. I'm thinking anything. I'm thinking about like the worst stuff that comes to my mind, right? Like, am I okay with anything? And anywhere, that's got to be the worst place in the world. Like, I don't even know what it is, but it's got to be terrible, right? Like, I don't, it doesn't necessarily, but I, I'm just thinking, anywhere? What are you talking about? I don't know if I'm going to go anywhere. And I didn't move that day. And so they're like, the, all these college students are up on the stage, and there's like five pagans standing out in the thing, and I'm there. And I was like, I'm not going up there. So I wrestled through that decision. I ended up making that decision. I mean, who, who what am I, my, me not submitting to it is going to change God being able to do it? <laughs> I submitted to the Lord and said, anything, anytime, anywhere, anything you want me to do, anywhere. Then I remember when my wife and I were reminiscing over this uh, just a few weeks ago. We, before we came to plant this church, before we knew what it was going to be named, before we knew what, where it was going to be located, before we even asked anybody to be involved in it, we were sitting in, in Plano, Texas, where we lived. Took a map, laid it out on the living room floor, and just said, God, anywhere. See, before we can come to those specific questions, where? Where do you want us to go? Anywhere you want us to go. We're looking at that, man. We're looking at North America. We're just saying anywhere. Anywhere you want us to plant a church. We believe you want us to plant a church. Before you can talk about the specifics, you've got to ask about the general call. So have you answered the general call of faith? If you've answered the general call of faith, that you'd come and die, then let me tell you what will happen. It's the next phase. Your faith will be tested. It's the tested faith. It's a faith that's being tested. What good is a faith that's never tested? How weak of a faith would that be? It's the next thing that Stephen talks about as he's on trial here, talking about a faith tested before these men that could take his life. And he says here, and jump down to verse, verse 7, He's talking about the Egyptians here. He says, but I will uh, punish that nation. Uh, they serve as slaves, the Egyptians, and God said. And afterward, they'll come out of that country and worship me in this place. Talking about the land that they're in. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac. And now he's setting up who he's about to talk about. It's Joseph. He says, he gave him, he, he father of uh, Isaac, he circumcised him on the eighth day after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs, some of the most renowned men in all of Jewish history, speaking to this Jewish court. He says, because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, the 11th of the 12 patriarchs, and dad's favorite, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. And so if you think about Stephen's sermon here that he's preaching, he could have, if you're going to talk about faith being tested, he could have continued to talk about Abraham. Because Abraham, in Genesis chapter 22, he's tested it. The scripture of Genesis even uses that language. God tests Abraham's faith of whether he'll give his most valuable possession, most valuable relationship to the Lord. But sometimes that's how God tests us, with acts of obedience. Sometimes God tests us in difficult other ways. Sometimes we're, we're tested in temptations and all kinds of things. But 
Instead, he chooses Joseph. And if you know Joseph's story, which these men would, and he doesn't fill in all the details right here. He talks about he gets sold into slavery. Joseph's story is a story of suffering, of trials, of loss. Because oftentimes, the way that God tests our faith is through difficulty, it's through trials, it's through pain. I know some of you, you've been through trials, some of you are in trials. Pain. Joblessness, some people. Some people, these things with your kids, it's not going the way that you thought it would go or wanted it to go. Some people, it's, it's health stuff. Some people, it's dealing with stuff from your past. The depression, anxiety, all kinds of things that you feel trapped in. I'm talking about those difficult times when when you go to pray, not only is God not answering your prayers, you don't even know if he's listening to your prayers. And you think about the story of Joseph, and if you don't know it, you can go back and read it. It starts in the middle of the book of Genesis and goes through the end kind of a long story, but what happens is that Joseph, he's born into this family, he's the 11th of 12 boys, and he's dad's favorite. And so some of the other boys are envious because of that. And then he has a dream one day. His dream is that one day he will rule over his parents and rule over his brothers. And he tells them about this dream, and so they become more envious, and they're upset with them. One day when he's 17 years old, his dad sends him out into a field, and he's going to go out in the field and be with his brothers, and his brothers are finally in a situation where there's no accountability. Dad's not around. Here's dad's favorite. They put a beat down on Joseph. They throw him in a pit. They start to argue about what to do with him, and some slave traders come by. They sell him into slavery. Now Joseph's taken off, and they go back to dad, and they fake his death. Dad, so dad thinks that his son's dead. Can you imagine being Joseph now, forsaken by your family, abandoned, lonely, feel like nobody's there for you, nobody supports you, nobody understands you, nobody loves you? And some of you know exactly what that's like. Whether it's true or not, some of you know what it feels like to feel like nobody understands, nobody gets it, that you're all alone. Those are dark days. Then he gets to this other land. He works really hard. God blesses him. He ends up getting some accomplishments, getting to a place, but then he's falsely accused of a crime. Everything's taken from him, and he's put in prison for years. Sometimes we read through the scriptures, and we'll read a couple verses, and it's really quick for us. It's like 30 seconds, and God's covered years. This is years in the life of Joseph's situation. While he's in prison, he helps some guys. One of them says, I'll remember you, and he gets out, doesn't come back for two years. What do you think it was like in that prison during those days? All alone, nobody out there fighting for you, nobody pleading your case, nobody trying to get you out, nobody trying to post bail, nobody visiting you. Dark days. Some of you have been there before. Some of you are there now. I've shared with you before some briefly about a couple of years ago. I had a, a real, real tough battle with anxiety. And uh, if you looked at it, it didn't make sense what was happening in my life. I look at it out, outwardly, things were going great in my life. We planted this church. Church had grown hundreds of people three or four years into the church at that point. And uh, I had friends who had planted churches, and they, weren't, they didn't even exist anymore. They planted about the same time. You know the majority of churches, church plants, don't make it after three or four years and we were there, God was saving people, people that were Christians were coming, and the light was coming on, like what it really meant to live the Christian life, and so I should have been excited about that. I had a, marriage was going great, had healthy children, everything really outwardly in life was, was going well, and I started to have this battle with anxiety, and when I say that, I don't mean like I was just stressed out, like I'd worry about stuff or couldn't sleep, that had, that'd been, that had happened lots of times, like didn't sleep through the night and stressed and worry. I'm talking about, like I thought I was going crazy, and one of the elders was walking through me with the situation, was going to a counselor, working through stuff. Because I didn't, I, it was having irrational fears. Um, I, w- I just thought, like, what about the worst scenarios happening in my life? And it was like they were happening in my head. 
And I'd battle through this stuff, and what happened was I knew what I was like. I knew how bad, I know how sinful I am. And then God would bless me, it had to be like a joke. And so certainly he's going to take everything away. And so I think through scenarios, like Joseph's scenarios, like what, the, no reputation, the ministry's gone, the people are gone, the family's gone, all this stuff. And there was a breakthrough moment, I remember, and I don't know how to dramatize it for you, so I'm not going to try to dramatize it, but it's such a simple truth, was so powerful in my life. So in those moments, you feel like, is God, are you even there? Like, are you listening? And he said, they can't take me. Like, I, it doesn't matter. Like, if everything else, whatever could, worse could possibly happen, you got a relationship with Christ, they can't take me. I didn't read this whole verse here in verse 9, but let me read it to you. When Joseph sold into slavery, it says, because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him into slavery in Egypt. But God was with him. But you see, the thing is, for Joseph, he didn't have some of the promises we have when we're in those dark days. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, like we sang earlier. God works all things, it's good things and bad things, all things together for good, for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And have Romans chapter 8, verse 38 and 39 to go to, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, their present nor future nor any powers, nor height nor depth, anything else in all creation, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. He didn't have that promise. You know what Joseph had? He didn't have scriptures then. He had a dream. He had a dream that one day God was going to work these things out so that he would rule over his family and over his brothers and sisters. And how do you believe that when you're in a prison cell? You see people, God, I obey you and you do this? And you don't believe in the sovereignty of God. You know what happened in Joseph's life? He believed in the sovereignty of God. And he didn't have the scriptures, but there is a scripture that summarizes his life. And what's happening is after he gets out of jail, and we're going to skip some of those verses, he gets out of jail, and what ends up happening is he ends up ruling over his family. They come to him, and he's in a situation to provide for them. And then his brothers, they get real anxious. They're nervous that as soon as dad's dead, Jacob, as soon as he's gone, then their protection's gone, they think. And so certainly Joseph's going to wipe us out. And you know what Joseph says to them? Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. To accomplish what is now being done. And get this, it's not about Joseph. And it's not about the brothers. It's about God's glory. It's the saving of many lives. See, it was about more than just me, and it was about more than just you, and it was about more than that prison cell, and it was about more. When you were beating me, God was sovereign. When, when you were selling me into slavery, God was sovereign. When I was falsely accused, God was in control. When I was in that prison, God was in control. And so Joseph's able to do what so many of us struggle with in those difficult times is trust God. It's a faith tested. What good is a faith that doesn't get tested? That's why the scriptures tell us verses that sound like craziness, right? James chapter 1, rejoice in your trials. <laughs> Isn't that like an asinine verse? Like, who does that? All right, I got in a car accident. Sweet. Nobody does that. Unless you have such a grasp of the sovereignty of God in your life that you realize he's ultimately working all these things out for his glory, which is your good. You were designed for his glory. And so you get verses like James chapter 1. It says, rejoice in all of your trials. Because in your trials, that produces perseverance. And you know what perseverance does? Perseverance works itself out so that you may be complete, not lacking anything, so that your faith can become mature. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we wanted to die. We couldn't handle this stuff, this whole idea that God doesn't give us more than we can handle. Paul says himself, uh, we wanted to die, but it happened so that our faith would be strengthened. It's our faith that's tested. What happens to the faith test is eventually it leads to a faith that's set free. 
And that's the third phase of faith that we see is a faith set free. There's a faith called, there's a faith tested, and then the third phase of faith is a faith set free. And jump down to verse 18 with me. In verses 10 through 17, we get more of the life of Joseph and what happens there, and we've summarized that. But verse 18 starts to talk about Moses. He sets it up and talks about a faith set free. He says, uh, Then another king, who knew nothing about Joseph, became ruler. He dealt treacherously with our people, and oppressed our forefathers. And so there's oppression, there's slavery taking place by forcing them to throw their newborn babies out so that they would die. And so infanticide, they were forced to commit infanticide by the law. At that time, Moses was born. So he's born into oppression. And he was no ordinary child. <laughs> I love how Moses is described in the scriptures. As a baby, it says he's no ordinary child here. And there's other translations some of you may have. In the book of Genesis, the way it's translated is, he was a fine child. I think everybody thinks that their baby is a fine baby. Have you seen pictures of babies? Not your babies. All your babies are really cute, okay? But Moses, he's specifically mentioned by God as a fine child. And some of you may have little study Bibles or, or notes in your Bibles, or uh, if you've got you know, version or something, there might be a note there. My NIV, it says this about what this means. It's not just talking about Moses was handsome. It says he was fair in the sight of God. And so God's saying this, so it's true. But it doesn't just mean he's good-looking. I'm sure Moses was a good-looking baby. But what it's saying is, if you ever see the, the statement in the Scriptures in the Old Testament, uh, may his face shine on you, that's the idea. And some people will pray, I'll pray that over our church sometimes. It's from the book of Numbers, and you see that. or, or you see, It's God's favor was on him. God's blessing was on him. God's grace was on him. He wasn't ordinary. See, he was anointed for a special task. He was selected to be the deliverer of the people, to set these people free. Everyone else wasn't picked to be the deliverer. Moses was picked to be the deliverer. He had a unique role. He was no ordinary child. Now, for three months, he was cared for in his father's house. And when he was placed outside to die, death by exposure, or to be eaten in the Nile River, God was gracious to Moses. Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. And he was educated. Moses was educated, verse 22. And all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. He had the best education, the best teaching, verse 23. When Moses was 40 years old, don't miss how long this has been, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. He's got a calling in his life. He doesn't know how to fulfill it yet, but there's a burden in his heart. Verse 24, he saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. Look what happens. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting, so two Hebrews this time. He tried to reconcile them by saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other, the one who was in the wrong, pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Don't judge me. Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Moses didn't know they knew about this. When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian in fear. Genesis tells us he was afraid of Pharaoh, where he settled as a foreigner, and he made a life for himself there. He had a couple sons. Verse 30, After 40 years... Don't miss that. 40 years of running. 40 years of living in fear. 40 years of not looking back at his pain, at the greatest mistake in his life. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert on Mount Sinai. And when he saw this, he was amazed at the sight, because that was a big bush, wasn't it? It's on the Bible, on History Channel there. 
As he went over to look more closely, he heard the Lord's voice. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals. The place where you're standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now I will send you back to Egypt. Now, a lot of times we read this and we're like, and then he goes back, and you know, you know how the story goes. If you're familiar with most of you, whether you saw the you know, Charlton Heston version, you saw the History Channel version, you kind of know what happens here. But think about it from Moses' perspective. Stephen's not talking about all the Israelites here. He's talking about Moses. Go back to Egypt? Go back? You mean in order for me to live in freedom, I've got to go back and deal with my pain? And I've got to go back and face my greatest fear? And, and I've got to go back? to the greatest mistake that I ever made in my life? Trust me, Moses. you got to go back. What if God told you in order for you to live by freedom that you got to deal with the stuff from your past? Your greatest pain, your greatest fear, your greatest mistake. For 40, that's 40 years ago, God, that I've been living on the run, that I've been living in fear, that I've been living hiding. So you got to go back, Moses. What happens? Verse 36, he led them out of Egypt, did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt and the Red Sea, and for 40 years in the desert, he did miracles. And so they were set free, right? You've seen the story? That's not a trick question. You know, they were set free. They, he puts the spear down, and I don't, it doesn't matter what the effects were like, which version you watch, but they go across the water, right? And all the Egyptians get wiped out, and they're in, they're in freedom. They're in, free, they're in a free environment. They're not truly free. Moses is. The rest of the Israelites are not. If you don't believe me, look at verse 39. Verse 39 says, But our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him. Talking about God through Moses. Uh, They rejected him. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. And then he goes on to talk about the golden calf situation. It's the most embarrassing moment in Israelite history, the golden calf situation. Do you know what the golden calf was? The calf worship was integral to Egyptian worship. What had happened was the Israelites were in a new environment, but they were still in as much bondage as they had been before. Their hearts were still in Egypt. And see, sometimes we make the mistake of thinking if we just change our environment, things will get better. I went uh, a couple weeks ago to celebrate recovery to hear a friend of mine share his story. He was talking about uh, where he was at. He was in addiction, addicted to drugs, had been making some bad decisions, uh, hanging around with some bad people, had gotten in trouble with the police. And after he got in trouble with the police one time, he said, I know what I'll do. I'll move to a new city. And at the time when he was telling his testimony, he was joking that that would fix his problems. When he was living it, and if you know anybody who's ever had an addiction before, you know, living in it, he really thought that changing his environment would change his life. And, and we see this, you know, sometimes you see it with addicts. Sometimes you see it with people, and they, what they do with jobs. We'll do it with jobs. If I just had a different environment, different atmosphere, then everything would be better. You don't deal with anything internal. If I just had a different marriage, if I had a different spouse, they're the problem. If I just fix that, then everything will be okay. Or if I just had a different city to live in, and it changed all this stuff. And so my friend says, if I just had a different city, do you know what happens? He got to the new city, I started doing the same things, hanging around with the same kind of people. Do you know why? Because he had changed his environment that he lived in, but nothing had changed internally in his life. And that's what happened for the Israelites. New environment. They're no longer being whipped and beaten by the Egyptians. That's a, great, a better environment, right? But nothing's changed in their hearts, so they have the same exact problems. They're not free. But Moses is free. And you know how we know Moses is free? Because verse 37, 
Verse 37 says, this is what Moses told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. What Moses is saying is, there's one, he's a deliverer, he's coming, he's greater than me. Here's how we know Moses is free, because Moses' life is not all about Moses. That's when you know you're truly able to walk in freedom. That's when your faith is set free, where you can make decisions to obey God, and it doesn't matter what the results are, because you're not so concerned with controlling the results. You don't care what other people think of you. You're not worried about what you might lose. It doesn't matter what your situation might be, as long as you walk by faith. Because that's where Moses is at. He's pointing people to Christ in verse 37 there. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, I believe it is. Or maybe it's 15, 18. You can look both up. It won't hurt you to look both up. He's pointing people to Jesus. What he's doing there is the same thing that John the Baptist does in the Gospels when he says, there's one greater than me coming, one whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. And do you know what he says? Here's a statement of freedom. He must increase. I must decrease. Because my life is really about pointing you to him. And so Stephen's in this situation, and talk about a guy who experiences freedom. He's about to speak like a prophet to a group of people who all their fathers have killed the prophets. <laughs> he doesn't care what happens to him. He knows what he's been called to do, to be a witness. And so instead of testifying about why you shouldn't kill me and trying to get himself out of the situation, instead he views it as an opportunity to be the very thing God designed him to be, and so he's going to walk by faith. His faith is on trial, and he's passing with flying colors because he's free to live by faith. The circumstances, the results don't matter. He's just going to be obedient. And so Stephen shows them what a faith set free looks like, preaches to them about Moses as someone because he doesn't, life isn't about him. For him to live is Christ, to die is gain. Is that true for you? That is a faith set free. And then he shows us the fourth phase of faith. We're going to jump down to verse 51 here. The fourth phase of faith is a facade of faith. And if you know what a facade is, a facade is a, a superficial image. It's a, a front. It is a, a something that, that gives the appearance of something that may or may not be true in the back, but it's a facade of faith. It's when it looks like faith, and think about the guys he's talking to here. What Stephen's about to do is he's about to turn the tables. What's really on trial here is not my faith. We're really talking about your faith. Up to this point, throughout this passage, he said, our fathers, my brothers. And look what he says in verse 51. You stiff-necked people. He's changed the person. He's not going to identify with this. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You're just like your fathers. And they would think to themselves, yeah, our father Abraham and our father Joseph and our father Moses. No, you're just like the people who rejected them. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Verse 52, was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed the one, those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. That's Jesus Christ. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. Verse 53. You have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but you've not obeyed it. They're putting him on trial because they think he doesn't obey the law. He's saying to them, listen, you covet, you idol worship, you lie, you murder, you, you, don't, you don't honor your parents, all those things that you think are so important, you don't obey them. He's calling them hypocrites. You know what Jesus says about hypocrites? There's a special place in hell for hypocrites. Read it. It's in the book of Matthew. This is a bad situation to be in, but they wouldn't even get it. Up until this point, hearing this sermon, they'd hear about, yeah, it's like a history lesson and a familiar one. We know Abraham. We know Moses. We know Joseph. We know those stories. We know the call to faith, and they would say they've answered it. We know faith tested. We've been through these difficult things, and we still believe. We know what it's like to be free. We're the leaders. See, these are the people... That if you were to see, if somebody were to say something offensive about God, they'd be the first to respond. 
These are people that are leading the charge to make sure that there's no laws that are put into place that would hinder their faith. These are the people that you would look at and think that's an example of godliness. And what Stephen says is, you have a facade of faith. It's not real. It's outward and it looks real, but the reality is you have not been transformed internally. And he says these things to them, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised ears and uncircumcised hearts. Now to understand the power of that statement, you've got to realize how important circumcision is. These are the God-fearing Jewish men. They've all been physically circumcised. But what circumcision is supposed to be is an outward expression of an inward reality, of a covenant relationship with God. It'd be the equivalent of us talking about baptism. Like if I said to somebody, are you a Christian? And they said, I'm baptized. And I said, that's great. Are you a Christian? Baptism is important. If you're a believer, you should be baptized. But what baptism is, it's a symbol outwardly of something that's already happened internally in the relationship you've entered in with Christ. And so for me, it would be like today if I said, listen, a bunch of us are people with unbaptized ears and unbaptized hearts. No, they went under the water. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about we think because of outward stuff that we have a relationship with Christ, but the reality is we lack faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And Stephen says to these guys, you have uncircumcised ears and uncircumcised hearts. He's using the language of Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 10. And what Jeremiah says in chapter 6 verse 10 is your uncircumcised ears stop you from being able to hear the call of God. So you know the scriptures, you know the statements, you know all that stuff, but you don't respond because your hearts are not moved. He says, come and die. Yeah, I can repeat that. And if you ask, what's the call of God? I can come and die. But have you answered the call? Anything, anytime, anywhere. And the answer for these men was no. They managed the results. They were in control. That's why they were so afraid of Jesus. He says, you have uncircumcised ears, uncircumcised hearts, and you're a stiff-necked people. Another translation, some of your Bibles might say obstinate people. It's the same word that's used in the uh, book of Exodus to describe the people when they go to calf worship. And God says, these are an obstinate people. They will not bow their hearts. They will not bow their neck. They bow their heads to me. Because they're, they're, they're stiff-necked. They're idol worshipers. Now, to tell these guys they were idol worshipers, like, that is so off the radar for them. To even, they wouldn't even think, I'm an idol worshiper. They're Jewish. No other gods before you. It's like right up there at the top. right? They don't, of course, wouldn't do that. Be saying, you don't even get it. You don't realize it. It's like, I had, uh, some of you were here about a month ago, friend of mine, Dr. Bill Brown, came and spoke. He's the president of Cedarville University, so maybe remember that. And the night before he came to preach at Southbridge, he came over to our house, and we had dinner, and some friends were there, and we were talking. He was telling some stories. He told a story of one pastor that he knows who had recently visited India. And if you're familiar with Indian culture, you know that they're primarily Buddhist, and so they have millions of gods, little statues all over the place there. And he says this pastor's there amongst all these little statues and all that stuff, and uh, he's talking to them. And uh, as, as they're having this meal, uh, this woman that's there, he finds out that she's recently visited the United States. And uh, he says to her, how did you like your visit? And she shakes her head no. So he did not like my visit to the United States. And he's interested in that. And he's, you know, everybody's supposed to love the United States, right? And so he's, he inquires, why didn't you like your visit to the United States? And she says, there are way too many idols there. And he's like, like there's statues like everywhere around here. And then Dr. Brown went on to tell that group that we were having dinner with, he said, uh, in America, our idols are on magazine covers. Every magazine cover has an idol. Whether it's Forbes magazine, whether it's Tech magazine, whether it's ESPN the magazine, whether it's a pornographic magazine, whether it's Cosmopolitan magazine. All these images, they're just symbols, though. 
You see, the idols aren't all out there. The reason why we don't recognize them is because they're so at home in our hearts. And so what the idols are is when they're in our hearts. They dictate our decisions. That's what idols do. That's what a God does. Your idol is the thing you go to in difficult times. Whether that's entertainment, whether that's food, whether that's sex, whether that's a hobby, whatever that is. Or if it's the one true God, then it's not an idol. Well, we have to ask ourselves the question of that. And he tells these men, listen, you're, you're idolatrous. You have a facade of faith. They would not hear that. And they're the people that most needed to hear that. See, oftentimes hypocrisy is so thick, it's so self-deceiving, that the people who need to hear it the most are the least likely to receive it. And so it requires great reflection. And that's what we're going to do as a church. We're going to reflect on where we're at in our faith this morning. I'm presented to you with four different, four different places that we could be. The call of faith, responding, anything, anytime, anywhere. A testing of faith, some of you are in that place, you need to reflect on the sovereignty of God. And some people are freedom of faith, where life's not about you anymore, it's about Jesus Christ, for you to live as Christ, to die as gain. It'd be beneficial, you'd get to be with Jesus. How amazing. But there are some people that are in the facade of faith, it's a place where you need to repent. You need to turn. If your faith were on trial today, what would you be found guilty of? Because there is a judge and he is watching every word, every deed, every moment, every penny, every thought. Would you be convicted of living by faith? Because without faith, it's impossible to please him. So do you live a life of faith? The worship team is going to come, and I'm going to begin to lead us in a time of prayer. And we're just going to give you some moments to pray to the Lord this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we bow our hearts, we bow our necks, we bow before you. And I pray for my friends, for my brothers, for my sisters, for my elders, for my for people that are brand new here today that I haven't even met yet. I pray if there's any here that need to respond to the call of faith that today would be the day. Some may need to say they'll do anything you want them to do. Go anywhere you want them to go. Some people may need to begin a relationship with your son Jesus Christ. You know they've sinned. They know they've sinned. It's not a secret, but they need to acknowledge their sin before you and surrender to your son Jesus Christ as their savior who paid for that sin on the cross when he died and is offering them a gift of eternal life. They need to receive that and answer that call. And Father, there are some here that are, that are in the midst of trials. They're in the midst of difficulty. It might be daily difficulty. It might be something bigger than daily stuff. And Father, you're sovereign. You're in control and we might not see it. We might not realize it in the moment. God, help us to trust you as you test our faith. Help them to trust you, to cast their cares upon you. We know that you care for them. And Father, I pray, I pray that we'd be able to walk in the freedom of faith, but I do pray, God, the severe warning that there's any of us that are living by a false faith, the facade of faith, that you would get to our hearts in this time, that we would repent, that we would turn to you. And as the worship team plays, we'll just, they'll sing over us and uh, just give you some moments to reflect and talk to the Lord.